The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome back to The Things We All Carry. Today it's Tuesday, two days before Thanksgiving, and I got a lot of things on my mind. Um, I won't speak about all of them because I'm not going to take up everybody's time in addition to this show. Uh, one of the things that, that, that was on my mind is the fact that for the last few years, I've been living every one of my holidays or one of these holidays or special occasions as the last. Like everyone has been the last one I'll spend with my mom. And, you know, that, that, that's not a great way to live. Obviously it's, it's, you want to, you don't want to get caught up in that. You want to get, you more want to just enjoy the time you have or had with her or, or whoever. And so to get caught up in this is the last is kind of a fatalistic way of thinking. Um, but I did, I'm, I'm, I did. It's, it's obvious. It was obvious to people that that's, I almost refused to let myself enjoy the holidays. And so the other day I was thinking that you know, I've spent a lot of lasts for the last few years. And then all of a sudden, now it's a first. You know, I get the first Thanksgiving after my mom died. And, you know, we have our traditions. We had our traditions as, as family. And those traditions have been trickled down to, to our own families and, in, in, you know, in bits and pieces at least, if not in entirety. And now I guess it's time for, for more new traditions. Um, we'll carry on some traditions with recipes and, and whatnot. But when you look for the future, you look for a new start and you acknowledge your past and you, you honor, I will, I'll sit and, and I'll honor her. But um, I look forward to, to something new. Um, and I look forward to a first, even though it's a weird kind of a first because it's a first after her death, but it's, it's finally not a last. And I think that's, what's really bothered me for the last few years is, is I've lived in that mindset. This is the last. And that's a tough way to, to think. And I chastise myself, which I'm, I'm pretty good at doing. And, and I need to get over that part as well. You know, I chastise myself for doing something like that. Um, so I need to look forward to the future and start living that and start creating those new memories of the first or the next. And like I said, honor the past, recognize it, but don't live in it necessarily. And it kind of cuts two ways. You know, it's, it, it's the positive as well as the negative. And I'm really good at beating myself up for the past choices and past decisions and past actions. But I, I can't do that anymore. That can't be the way I live. It can't be the way anybody lives, to be honest with you. You know, you make a decision, right or wrong, and you, you kind of have to stick with it, obviously. And you have to live with it. And you have to accept yourself. And I've said this to a couple of people, and, and I never, not never, that's, 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 that's kind of harsh, but I rarely give it to myself, but you have to find that grace to give yourself. 
And grace is the only way you overcome some mistakes. But you learn from the mistakes as well. And I've learned a lot from my mistakes. And I've made a lot of mistakes, let's be honest. And people out there nodding their heads right now. Yeah, that motherfucker has made a lot of mistakes. It's, it's part of life. You have to make mistakes in life. That's how you learn. That's how you grow. That's how you mature. And I don't want to run from my mistakes. You know, uh, music is a big part of my life. And right now, one of the songs that was on repeat for the last couple of weeks was Traveling Man by Zach Bryan. And in there, he says, because uh, I'm just a traveling man, we're all running from the things inside. And it sticks with me for years, probably decades, I've been running from the things inside. Instead of meeting those things inside head on, you know, I have my, I have had my therapy. I've discussed some of these things, but in a way I still run from them. And it's not, again, it's not a way to live. You can't run from the things inside. You got to kind of do a U-turn, meet them head on, stare them down. You got to accept them. You got to, like I said, learn from them, grow from them, mature from them. And then don't make them again. You know, what, you don't, don't create a pattern of behavior. A mistake is one thing, but a pattern is a whole nother thing. And, uh, I got to get past some of that. You know, I, um, I say this quite often and I've said it on this show and I've said it in public to other people. I'm just a flawed individual. And my flaws are, are my, my own flaws. Obviously I share some with some people and, and they're different from other people's. I've made my mistakes. I've tried to make my amends and there's still amends to make with people. Um, it's a realization that life continues. You have to, like I said, give grace, give forgiveness, get up, look to the future and just fucking live. And I'm ready to live a little bit. I'm ready to enjoy a little bit. I'm ready to embrace myself a little bit. It's not been an easy thing for me to come to because it's really easy to blame myself for all the bullshit. It's really easy to blame others for all the bullshit. But it's a crutch to do that. And I need to, to abandon that crutch, step up, recognize it. And like I said, again, learn from it, grow from it, mature from it. Somewhere out there. And again, I am not a religious person. I would define myself as an atheist. But I believe that there's a, there's a universal, I don't know, there's universes out there. And I know not to get metaphysical and weird on people, but there's universes out there and there's something out there beyond us. What it is, I don't know. I don't know if it's an all powerful being or if it's just, uh, you know, alternate universes or, or something of the such. And so going back to music, there's another song that's been on repeat for me because for some reason it's just been stuck in my head. And it's Sturgill Simpson and it's uh, Turtles All the Way Down. And it just, it, it's obviously, if you listen to it and you read the lyrics, you pick up very quickly what the song is about. And one of the lyrics in there says, it reads, 
says, my son, it's all been done. And someday you're going to wake up old and gray. So go and try to have some fun showing warmth to everyone you meet and greet and cheat along the way. There's a gateway in our minds that leads somewhere out there far beyond this plane where reptile aliens made a light, cut you open and pull out all your pain. And I know that you're thinking, well, all right, we're getting, we're getting a little far out there now. But I think it's, it's, you know, there's, there's introspection to be taken. And whether you do that naturally or you ingest a plant, there's, there's something else out there for us. You know, it goes on to say there's a gateway in our minds that leads somewhere out there far beyond this plane where reptile aliens made of light cut you open and pull out all your pain. Tell me how you make illegal something that we all make in our brain. Some say you might go crazy, but then again, it might make you go sane. I think I'd like to go sane at times. I've felt crazy before. And I'd like to be sane. I'd like to find it, find what it is that makes you sane or me sane or whatever. And, and define what sane is. Many times in the last few weeks, I've thought about my past. And I've wondered what the person was most important to me in my life for, for the majority of my life would think of me. And we had a conversation and she told me what she thought about me. And then she told me what she thought about herself. And I was floored because I didn't realize that she felt some of the same things about herself that I felt about myself. And it goes, it goes to show that you're not alone. We all have those feelings. We all have that self-doubt, the negative self-talk. We even get darker than that. You know, I, uh, I talk to a lot of people who have considered, you know, the ultimate considered suicide. And I know I don't judge them. I've, I've considered it in the past. It's not something I'm proud of, but it was something that came to me as like, well, you could just, uh, that could be it. And uh, thankfully that I never, never chose that or never wanted that necessarily, but I, but I knew it was always there as an option. And as we go into Thanksgiving and then we go into the holidays in December, just reach out to people. And if you're feeling some things like that, and if you're feeling down, if you're feeling like there's nowhere to go, reach out, text me, message me, call me. You know, we all need somebody to talk to. We all need somebody to lean on. You can't do it for yourself. Not all the time. And then if you have friends that are, that, that are alone during the holidays, or if you have friends that or just acting a little off during the holidays, reach out to them, man. Just reach out to them. Extend a hand, extend an olive branch, talk to them. Bring them into the fold, you know? Show them that people care. Treat them with some, some humanity and some, and, and some kindness. It goes a long way. It goes a long, long way. I think I've, I've rambled enough about those thoughts. And uh, again, I really had no idea what I was going to say, so hopefully it makes sense. Hopefully I didn't get too far off topic and, uh, without further ado, I will introduce today's guest. So welcome to episode 92 of the things we all carry today. I've had the pleasure of bringing to you 
a gentleman who goes by the name, the angry Viking therapist. And you can find him under Dr. Trevor Wilkins on Instagram. Dr. Trevor Wilkins is a licensed professional clinical counselor and he lives in Kentucky. He, um, he specializes in symptoms related to trauma, depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And he works with us, this, uh, this first responder community, the military community, high stress environments. He's been one of us. He was a volunteer firefighter. He was an EMT and he was a law enforcement officer for 15 years, including a good stint with Kentucky state police. He had his own shit go on in his life and he switched gears. He went back to school, got his master's degree, started his own practice and then went back to school again and got his doctorate. And he is a, uh, he's a fascinating individual. He works in what we call rational emotive behavior therapy. And we get into that a little bit. It's a, it's a pioneering form of cognitive behavior therapy. It's a little less, I don't know, a little less forgiving in a way, uh, not as, not as pretty. And it forces you to kind of, kind of think about your reaction to, to, to antecedents and how you can change your reaction to those. And it would change the outcome. It'll change the outcome quite a bit for you. And so it's a way of changing that thinking. And as well as working with rational emotive behavior therapy, he's also specializes in EMDR. And we've talked about EMDR quite a bit. And, and he, he makes some good points about how he works with the two and how one is more generalized. One might be more specific. And it's just, it was a really good conversation with a fascinating individual who I hope to have back on the show. And we're going to talk about a few more things because we started to go down a tangent and, it, and it's worth exploring. So you guys settle in, listen to Dr. Trevor Wilkins, the angry Viking therapist, and everybody go enjoy your Thanksgiving. Enjoy your time with family. Enjoy your time with friends. Enjoy some time off of work, hopefully. And uh, get out there and do something for yourselves. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. This is about getting the best information out that I can. Awesome. All right. So if you're ready, let's, uh, let's have that conversation and just see where we go today. All right. Welcome back to the things we all carry. This morning, I'm sitting down with Dr. Trevor Wilkins. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's a Monday and I've, I've already had coffee spilled all over the place and cleaned that up and moving on already. So that describes uh, you Mondays, guys, I think. yeah, it's Monday. It's great. <laughs> um, you guys can find Dr. Wilkins on Instagram under the handle of the angry Viking therapist, correct, sir? Uh, I think that will still work. We actually changed it to Dr. Trevor Wilkins recently just to get all the branding the same, but I think okay. either way you search will come up. Oh, perfect. All right. And then what's your website? Theangryvikingtherapist.com. Perfect. And get that out there. And we'll, we'll remind people at the end of the show as well and get, get some traffic there. Cause I, I've reading through your website, you've got some great tools there that people can use to, to utilize for some, some personal behavior change and, and, and. And along the lines of that, we'll, we'll get into discussing wh why and what. Um, before we get started, what was the last song you heard? 
the last song I heard, I just came from the gym from a heavy chest day. So it was uh, Bad Omens was the band, and the song was... I'll have to come up with it. The song was... It's one of my favorites. I don't know why I would draw a blank on... Uh, the Dethrone was the song before Dethrone. I even heard the lyric. Yep, I'm I know a, I'm I got a heavy a bunch metal of, guy, so. I was gonna say I got a bunch of listeners that are into bad omens, and so that they'll appreciate that. Yep, I'm a heavy metal guy. Yep, perfect. And and like you said, you just came from the gym, got the day started right, and 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 uh, that's the perfect music for a heavy chest day. <laughs> it is. It is. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are we finding you today? Where do you, where, where do you where do you live, and 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 where'd you grow up? Yeah, so now I am in the area of Lexington, Kentucky, right in the middle of the state. Uh, there's two kind of major cities people know about, Kentucky, Louisville, and Lexington, and I'm in the Lexington area. Uh, growing up, though, was Texas. Texas is still home for me, even though I've been here 20 years. This is definitely home now, but I always consider kind of Texas my uh, where I learned to cut my teeth, I guess. I grew up in a couple different places, mostly West Texas, Lubbock, Amarillo area. Uh, where Texas Tech is, I lived for a time in Dallas, lived in Oklahoma, lived in Kansas, I've lived in Colorado. Uh, we moved a lot in my uh, middle and high school years, so got to travel a little bit. But Texas is still home. Um, you know, relevant to this as far as growing up is that shortly, about 16 or 17 years old, I had just moved again, and I would not have considered those moves lonely. I did pretty good. You know, I was kind of a self-sufficient introvert, I guess, but I was looking to get into something, find some groups and, you know, sports are harder to get into when you move a lot. So I ran across a medical explorer program uh, when I was 16 and I knew that there was an explorer for like policing. I'd heard of that before, but the small town I lived in at the time happened to have a medical one. And so I went to it and most of it was people wanting to be doctors, surgeons, you know, physicians of some type. I was interested in EMS. That looked fun. You know, uh, this is way before, of course, social media days. And as I like to say, I come from the 1900s. So, you know, it's far before it, it was just on TV once in a while, like Rescue 911 was the only show I ever saw in the day, but looked great. So they, they offered some opportunities to do ride-alongs. And I think I was supposed to do one or two. And I think I did it every other weekend for about two years. And I hope I was never that guy. You know, I've had ride-alongs throughout my career, which I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, I hope I was never that annoying guy, but I just, man, it bit me. I just got bit yeah. by the bug and sure, some of the adrenaline and seeing new things and trauma and lights and sirens, but, but it just felt important, felt bigger than me, which is, I think, why a lot of us get into this stuff. And so that turned into kind of two years doing that. I was very fortunate because of that. I knew the director of EMS in that town who happened to also be the instructor for the EMT program. So he let me do that when I was 17. Uh, I took it when I was in my senior year in high school, actually uh, passed the national test. One of the first years the national test was around mid nineties. I passed it before I even turned 18. So I couldn't do anything with it, but I happened to pass and um, did that for a little, did EMS for a couple of years. Uh, kind of felt like that was my path. Uh, did the volunteer fireside because we were separate. So did a little bit of that. Uh, not a lot of experience there being in a small town, but a lot of EMS experience. Went to college at Texas Tech University, which is where I'm from, in the town that I'm from. Uh, as I like to say, I found out that I liked Lone Star Beer and Texas Girls mm -hmm. more than I liked class. 
So that didn't work yeah, out. You'll, you'll, you'll learn really quickly, won't you? Yeah, they they are uh, opposite of each other's goals. Those things, <laughs> uh, class. So uh, I actually ended up on academic probation, which is funny since it says doctor now. But I ended up on academic probation, quit school, and then I think I think really what I did was did a couple of ride-alongs with police buddies as I was kind of waiting out my time to get a full-time EMS job somewhere. Became a dispatcher during that time, full-time. And that kind of led me into a bigger interest of law enforcement. So I hit 21, got hired pretty quickly. Uh, within days of my birthday, small town took a chance on me. Worked a small agency for a couple of years uh, in the Oklahoma area. And then that, that whole panhandle that I'm from. And then my parents moved to Kentucky once they were empty nesters. Uh, my dad came out here for a job, ended up at the Frankfurt, the city of the state capital here. Mm-hmm. And my then girlfriend, long-term girlfriend and now wife, uh, came out. Uh, they're the same people, I guess I should say, not girlfriend and wives. But uh, <laughs> then girlfriend, now wife came out over Christmas one year, really liked it. I kind of shotgunned applications. We were wanting to leave where we were. Uh, shotgun applications in one of the two cities, Lexington picked me up. So Academy number two, uh, stayed there for about four years, very professional agency. Uh, just that, that city work just wasn't for me coming from a small town, uh, the politics I, I couldn't understand and very, very professional agency. I have no ill will against them, but ended up at a state agency at the time was called Kentucky vehicle enforcement. So it was kind of the traffic arm specialized in commercial vehicles, but was mostly focused on traffic. That got swallowed up in 2007 by the state police. Uh, a lot of a lot of states are different. In the states that I lived in, in the South, the state was a highway patrol. That's what they did, mm-hmm. and the sheriffs kind of took the calls in the county. Here, it's it's for most of the state, it's the opposite. Uh, the state police actually take all the calls. Here, uh, there's a few larger sheriffs departments that carry their own, but the state police kind of takes everything in the unincorporated unincorporated parts of the state here. Um, Leaving kind of vehicle enforcement to be traffic side, we merged and then kind of took on both roles. So that lasted me until about 2015, and now I'm doing something different, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah. So you know, so you go 2015 in Kentucky with with the state, mm-hmm. um, and that's interesting. I've never, I guess, I've never heard of that model before because in Virginia, it's, it's it is that typical model where the the state guys are are strictly traffic enforcement on yep. interstates and whatnot. And then the county guys are, are, are running calls or the county or city are running calls in, in, inside the, the incorporated towns. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that, cause you've got a different aspect from what I would have thought a state guy would have. It is very different. And in fact, so Ohio, just North of us has a very prevalent highway patrol. And a friend and I uh, went to Cleveland, which is the very Northern part of the state, uh, the opposite of me. And we went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, saw a couple of things and drove back. And I think I counted 26 or 27 troopers along the way, granted the right. whole state. So uh, 26, 27 troopers. I got in my truck at the state line. We were splitting up and I had to drive to Tennessee, which is the other opposite side of me. Exactly. Uh, for a speaking engagement and through Kentucky, I saw zero troopers. So, hmm. uh, you know, they're, they're far more shorthanded and busy taking calls. There are some traffic units, mm-hmm. but it is definitely not. Uh, their primary focus. It's a lot of call taking, a lot of investigation. Troopers handle a lot of detective roles uh, that are traditionally kind of detective roles. They have detectives for bigger cases, but yeah, it was a very different model. In fact, when we, when I went to the state, uh, you know, they kind of told me this and I thought, 
I think you guys are wrong. I'm in the wrong place. You know, it turns out that's just how it works here. A little different model. So how many years total with, with the state? So the state would have been, I think, eight. I did 15 total in law enforcement, 20 in public safety. But and what, what, what makes you decide, all right, I'm done with this. And now I'm going to go, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to become a doctor. And yeah, why? It's a great question because at first there was no decision made by me. So about 2007, uh, which is about halfway through my career, I got out 15. So 2007, I've been doing policing about seven years, uh, it all together, about 10 or 11 with EMS combined. And I'm coming home from court one day as, you know, every cop knows that's when the stupid stuff happens. It's on your day off trying to come home from court and there's a wreck. The, the traffic's backed up in front of me on the interstate. I'm on my way home and there's a wreck. And I called post as we call them here. I called post. They said, yeah, we've got a fate or a injury accident up ahead. And they used a code that told me it was probably going to be pretty bad. Mm-hmm. So I get around traffic. Uh, I beat the fire department there by about. 10 minutes, which is going to become prevalent in the story. And what I find when I get up there is an elderly lady in a Buick has sideswiped an 80,000 pound dump truck hauling rock. And we can already see who's going to win that one. Yeah. But the car went 90 degrees after hitting it through the guardrail, which I didn't know was possible, uh, down a, I don't know, hundred foot embankment of about 45 degrees and strikes a tree head on. Two things happen when she strikes the tree head on. One, she becomes completely entrapped in the vehicle. The dash actually comes down on top of her. This older car that just kind of crumbled on top of her. Mm-hmm. And the car caught on fire. So you got a pretty bad combination, but a combination that people have seen before. You know, it's not an individual story. So me and a couple truck drivers go sliding down this muddy hill. We get to the bottom. Uh, obviously, we find, you know, a mess of a situation. We try to get her out. Right. It's impossible. So... Unfortunately, we heard her succumb to her injuries, you know, the screaming and, and whatever you can kind of imagine. And again, when I talk to different agencies, whether it be counseling agencies, public safety agencies, I, I'm very fortunate to get to travel a lot and talk about this stuff that we're talking about. And I actually tell that story as third person. I tell it as a client. And eventually mm-hmm. I reveal that it was me that goes through all this, but I tell it a third person because everybody has those kind of stories. You know, whether it's a fire or a shooting or a kid or, and I don't want the focus on that. The reason I tell that story is when I look back, I could see that it was kind of the beginning of the downhill slide. It wasn't mm-hmm. the only problem, but when I look back with what I do now as a psychotherapist specializing in trauma, I can see like, yeah, that's when, that's when I really turned the page. And what the reason I tell it in third person is because I did what everybody else does. I finished the investigation. I went home, I took my uniform off. I got up the next morning, put my uniform on and went to work. That's what we do. Yeah. And even to me at the time, it was a bad one, but it was just a bad wreck. And, you know, I worked for the state. I've seen a million fatal wrecks. So I knew it was bad, but I didn't dwell on it. I didn't have nightmares about it or flashbacks or all those things that you hear about PTSD or trauma. I just went to work. When I look back on now and see over the next seven years after that, I, I went from literally, uh, you know, a recruiting kind of cop, you know, uh, squared away, good shape, uh, always ready to work, multiple awards for bravery in the line of duty, uh, multiple awards for most felony arrests in a post area. Like I really enjoyed being the police. I was good at it. I liked being the guy the Sarge could call and say, Hey, I need this done. And it was done period. Right. Count on me. I was a team player. 
I went from that guy to the absolute worst employee you could ever have. You know, I ended up in sergeant's office and lieutenant's office and captain's office and major's office. And, uh, you know, not a good, not a good look for my career. Uh, a major and I got into it pretty, pretty heatedly one time. I think both of us at fault, probably I'll take some blame. I think the other part was they didn't know what to do with me. I had, I had a couple of people standing up for me that I think were in the same kind of mental space. But I honestly believe looking back, they didn't know what to do with me. And it became a very, very toxic environment. I remember getting called to post one time and I walk in and there's a captain, two lieutenants and three sergeants sitting in a semicircle. It's not a good look, you know? And looking back, I, I do think they were trying to help. I do. But it was very toxic and angry and accusatory. And I just went the other way with, it. you know, if, if, if you think I'm the bad guy, I guess I'll just be the bad guy. That's fine. So those seven years of a lot of toxicity and what I know now in dealing with trauma and the brain and our filters and uh, the things I do now is that wreck kind of became a symbol of what was going to happen to me, even though somebody else was hurt, happened to me if those kind of acts continued. So if I stopped you for reckless driving, you were a worthless felon in my head. You were a horrible, terrible person. Whereas the seven years before, written your ticket, sent you on your way. That's what we do. But because again, the things I know now that I'm sure we can get into, my brain was going, okay, here we go again. If I don't stop this, I'm going to have to live with this again. So anyway, the, the culmination of that was I was, became a very toxic employee. About February of my last year, I was once again written up for low activity, which was not me. And a sergeant, I think, trying to be helpful, I, I truly do believe he's trying to be helpful, said, hey, man, why don't you take a couple of mental health days? Like, take some days off. We, we don't have mental health days here. We're, we're very old school. One of the things I, I say about uh, policing in this state is we never let progress impede tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, we're a very traditional model here. Yeah. And so I think he was trying to help take some days off. I took a few days off. And as in most places, if you take more than three days off, you got to have a doctor's note to come back. So I went to two doctors, two psychologists, and two psychiatrists. None of them would sign for me to go back. They knew I was a mess. Right. Uh, to me, I was just angry. There was a lot of other stuff going on, but um, that made me angrier, of course. So I burned seven months of sick time, which is what I had saved up because you never take sick time here. Um, got to about July of that year. And... Uh, you know, they told me like, good luck on the rest of your life. Pretty much, uh, let me resign or had me resign. And, um, I didn't like it, but I have been doing it 15 years, 20 total. So I was kind of at least in this place of, man, I don't want this to be done this way, but I've done my time at least, you know, I didn't, I went on six months. You know? So I, I've done my time. I put bad guys in jail. I've suffered through some stuff. My family is suffering, uh, terribly because of the things I was acting and doing, but so I thought, well, I'll just apply for a medical pension. At least I'll get what I deserve, get what I feel like I've earned. So I applied for it and got denied. Um, I appealed it with an attorney and got denied and eventually had a hearing and it got denied. So here I am 20 years into public safety, 15 years into law enforcement, no pension, you know, no, no love, no brotherhood, no, uh, all that stuff they took. It turned out to be false. 
I don't have necessarily negative view of policing, uh, but uh, you know those promises they make you are definitely fell flat. About taking when you care say of that, me. when you see when you say that everything wasn't true about the brother, do you mean like that door shutting behind you? Man, it did. Yeah, yep, it really did. I mean, I, I like physically like a metal prison door shutting behind me, and and mm-hmm. I will say to the. To the positive side of some cops, I still keep in contact with some of them. It's like we were working together yesterday. Great individuals. And I, to now, it took me a while to get here. But now I don't even blame my kind of immediate supervision. I think they were just trying to be supervisors. You know, upper level administration, I still have a lot of distaste for in the way they handled things. Um, but, but. Yeah, you know that we'll take care of you forever if anything ever bad happens to you. It turns out, for me, I knew that was kind of BS. And it turns out all these years later, I know that's for hundreds and hundreds of us, if not thousands, cops mm-hmm. and fire and EMS and military. And, but, you know, you do those push-ups in the academy believing that, that everything's going to be great if anything ever happens to you. And many physically and mentally injured people in this line of work can tell you that's not the case. No, they, that, I've, I've heard those stories, you know, repeatedly. And, and that's, that's why I wanted to clarify. And, and, and that door, it just, you're right. It, it shuts so quickly and so solidly that you, it, it's, it shocks you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to finish your question, you know, that's still a good point to make, but to finish your question about like, why, how did I make this change? I, I was out, man. I had nothing. I had no skills, no marketable skills. I guess I could have gone and like taught firearms or something. But not around here because I've been shamed and, you know, uh, my name's not going to get out here in that arena. So um, I had just finished my bachelor's degree, my criminal justice degree. I've been hanging over my head since I failed out, you know, when I was 19. And I, I had two daughters at the time. Still do, but I had two daughters at the time, fairly new. And I just kind of had this calling of like, man, you need to finish this, even if you're not going to use it in, in this career of law enforcement at the time, it's just hanging over my head. And I wanted to be able to tell my daughters, like, please go to college, you know, please don't do it my way. I really, it did hurt. So I finish, uh, I swear I'm never going to go to school again. As I like to say, I'm sitting on my back porch, having a bourbon and a cigar and I'm on my school website and uh, they have this, this master's degree for counseling. And I thought, uh, there was a lot, went, a lot more that went into where I was mentally, but I thought, well, maybe I can figure, I can do this and figure out what the hell's wrong with me. Why am I pushing everybody away? Why am I disaster? You know, why does my family scared of me and want to leave? Why, why does my brotherhood not want me anymore? I was in really, I call them the dark years. And so I ended up doing that really with the intention to just figure out what the hell's wrong with me and maybe help a friend along the way. So I finished that. I'm never going to go to school again. It was horrible. And one night I'm sitting on my back porch, uh, having a bourbon and a cigar. There's a theme there and I'm on my school's website and I see that they have a PhD in counseling. And I thought, man, that'd make me even better at it, you know? So, uh, I was a practicing therapist by then at the master's level, but then finished with the PhD, got the doctorate and that has definitely opened some doors for me, which has been a good, but, uh, so now um, I have a private practice in that Lexington, Kentucky area that I live. But also have that online presence of the Angry Viking Therapist. Uh, that nickname came from academia. Uh, as you may and the listeners may well know, academia is a very far-left institution. I do not fit in very well. But 
both by appearance and thought. And, uh, they gave me that nickname because they thought I was just this angry Viking dude. So uh, I just kind of stuck. I was doing some marketing one day, trying to make an online presence and my, the marketing guy loved it and I, I ran with it. So, so now that's what I treat. So, uh, I'm a psychotherapist and I treat, you know, complex PTSD trauma. Um, I like to say high risk careers because it's not just public safety and military. It's definitely a, a vast majority of, of the people that, that reach out to me is public safety and military, just because of my background. And I've got, I've got, and I don't take this lightly. I've got what I call borrowed credit. You know, I, I don't know your shootings and stabbings and car wrecks and, sh- you know, deaths, but I know those things. I don't know your crappy supervisor, but I know crappy supervisors and dedication to job and the things that you miss. I don't know yours, but I know those. So I don't necessarily think that makes me that, that you have to have that to connect with us, but it, I definitely get, you know, a little boost from, and I don't take it lightly. I take it honorably for sure. I think you might be muted. My dog was going to bark and <laughs> so I muted <laughs> just to, to prevent that. I'm sorry. What I was going to say was before we get into, you know, the, the practice and why you went down the route and, and how, or why you chose the, the studies you, you, you chose as you get into the PhD program. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about the family because you, you've, you've thrown in there a couple of times that family life was rough because you, you created that atmosphere for, mm-hmm. at, at home as well, correct? Oh, yeah. So at what point does that become apparent to you or was it always apparent to you? And then how did you say, okay, no, enough of that. I can't do this anymore. And how did you change that for yourself? It was probably a little bit of both. Um, I knew I wasn't in a good place. Mentally, I was angry all the time. For, for me, like I think a lot of public safety or type A folks, all those negative things manifest as anger, right? Depression for me was anger. Anxiety became anger. Uh, guilt became anger. Shame became anger. And what I say about those and how I kind of figured out I was in a bad place was we don't want depression, anxiety, guilt, shame, but anger's kind of active. It makes me feel like I'm doing something about it. It's extremely toxic in the long run. And I won't, I won't be one of those counselors that says that anger is always bad because anger has served you and me at a time. You know, if I'm fighting somebody in a ditch on the side of the road, 40 miles from backup, anger's probably in there, right? And I don't want to go too far, but so I don't want to say it's always bad. Like some people will put in a category of, but why did I need that anger at home and at church and at school? with kids, you know, so I knew I was getting angry, angrier. I could feel it. And I almost prided myself in it. You know, people would in the agency say like, man, you're the guy that we call to make, to piss everybody off, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think they were trying to tell me that I was a mess. And I took that as, yes, I'm the guy you call when you need something done. Yeah, right? an odd so, badge of honor. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. I, I fed off it. I, I've never done anything, you know, illegal or immoral and unethical. Maybe unprofessional. Maybe I've gone too far saying things to people, but, but you know, I've never hurt anybody unnecessarily. But, but yeah, it was kind of a badge of honor to me. Like, oh, I'm the tough guy. I've never been the mm-hmm. tough guy before. I'm the tough guy. Cool. You need me to, when, when it's time to fight, I got you, you know? So it, it was almost righteous to me and 
uh, th- this will tie in. I think when, when I, when I look back, people ask me all the time, like, do you have good memories of law enforcement? And I do. But what I remember first is those last two years sitting in the meeting in my cruiser, mad as hell. I hated civilians. I hated my coworkers. I hated my supervisors. I hated the world. I hated God. I hated my family. I was pushing them away as fast as I could. And I was sitting there just praying a stolen car would go by at 120 miles an hour shooting a gun in the air. Cause that, I'll just go take care of that. That's not emotional. There's no, there's no anger or sad or fear there. I just go handle it. Right. And, and, and there's a lot to that. Uh, mentally I know now, but that's what I think about is I was just angry all the time. So I would come home and I wasn't, you know, I've never laid a hand on my wife and kids. I don't even know if verbally abusive would be correct, but I was definitely angry and pushing them all away and overreacting mm-hmm. to small things. And, and again, I'm sure we'll get into the kind of the whys, the, the mental health side that to answer that question, I, I knew that I was becoming an angry mess. I just didn't care. It was fine for me. I was just going to be that guy. There was another divorced, pissed off cop, another pissed off state cop, you know, that just went and handled business and did this job until he died as a Sergeant Monday in 50 years, you know, yeah, and only had old cop stories. And I remember looking back, like, you know, my wife and I, who I adore are sitting on either ends of the couch, just not talking to each other. Cause you know, as I found out later, she's walking around on eggshells. Mm-hmm. So what a crappy husband I'd become. What a crappy dad I'd become. I didn't think so because I wasn't physically or mentally. I wasn't doing the things to people that, that I was seeing other dads do. So I was just righteously angry. And I guess I'll just go be the tactical tough guy. That's fine. I'll take on that role. Uh, that's an okay role <laughs> at the right time. But yes, right. the, the other part, I said it was both. The other part is I was actually just watching a podcast last night with a, with a former Delta guy who started a nonprofit and he talked about how his ultimatum from his wife kind of saved him. And I was sitting there thinking last night, like, did she ever give me an ultimatum? Like, you know, can I think back to a moment where she said this or done? And I don't know that she ever used those words that I can remember. She may have a different take on that, but I don't know that ever she used those words. But she definitely made it very clear if I didn't change, I'd be by myself in whatever pissed off journey I wanted to be. And as I look back, like I was watching that show last night, that kills me 10 times worse than getting fired from law enforcement. Yeah, that's understandable. It's definitely understandable. So you get, you, you, you have the kind of an inglorious exit from law enforcement, mm-hmm. we'll put it, we'll call it that. Um, and you, you start school, you, you finish, you, you've already finished your criminal justice degree, you get your master's, then you start looking into the PhD. Mm-hmm. And at what point do you find what path you want to take within that PhD? Cause, cause if people aren't really familiar with the, with the college or university setting, yeah, you can, you can do it. You can study for a degree or, or, or do your PhD, but you, there's paths within those programs mm-hmm. that you can take personally. So at what point did you go, that's it. That's what I need. That's what I've been looking for. And what was it? That's a good question. Um, I've always been interested in helping the people like me, 
whether that's public safety, military folks, type A folks. And, but you know, that master's and even some of the PhD was just kind of general counseling. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the things, like, you know, I'm proud that I, that I finished all this. It did give me a good platform. The PhD taught me a different way to think and do research and and be very evidence-based, which I think is kind of the point of it. And I did learn some advanced skills in that, in that kind of program, but, but graduate school is no different than the police or fire academy. You know, the police academy, I learned some skills, shooting, driving, talking to people, sort of, uh, fighting, you know, how to follow directions, attention to detail, the stuff you need to know. I didn't know crap about being the police. You know, I've got a good friend that owns a, a major training company in policing. And, and one of the things he says in his speeches that I've attended, he says, how many of you learn how to catch criminals and put them in jail in the academy? And nobody ever raises their hand. Right. We learned important things, you know? Um, and then he, he tends to make a joke about, yeah, but I bet you learned how to hit a bag with a baton and say, get back. Cause every cop knows right. that one. So, uh, and then you never use it. You never use that skill, but, um, so kind of like policing, okay, you know, you learn policing when you get out and do it. Um, this job's no different. I hope that I had a little bit of a leg up cause I had some a life experience and the, knew the people I was talking to, I still had to learn some of those skills, which would become certifications and trainings and things like that later. But so within the PhD, it's still pretty general, but I always knew that I wanted to help us, you know, that I was going to, I was going to talk to us. I, I would help soccer moms and I would help people that are generally depressed and whatever, you know, stress or whatever. But I wanted to talk to us because uh, maybe this answers the question better in a longer form though, is that, so when I was getting out in towards the end of that law enforcement career, I did the one thing you're not supposed to do and reached out for help. I knew sitting in that cruiser, sweating for no reason, mad at the world, I was pissed. So, uh, the state has a, a psychologist on staff. I actually happened to know, know him. He was a cop before. So I called him and I don't blame him for this. I think he was kind of handcuffed in this position. Uh, but he ends up doing more crisis stuff, you know, police involved shootings. Uh, he does a lot of their pre-employment stuff, uh, get, get them ready for the academy. And, uh, but I asked for help and I'm a, I can tell you where I was sitting in my cruiser when I finally asked for help. And again, great guy. But he said, yeah, I don't really kind of deal with this part, but let me give you to some people that can. Hmm. Well, okay. Strike one though. Right. You know, right. But at least exactly. he didn't say, I don't know. So. So he's, I go to this lady that he recommends and I, I don't know anything about her anymore. I haven't followed up with her. And when I'm telling that story of that fiery wreck and that lady screaming, she cries. The therapist is crying. It's okay to show empathy with your clients. I've definitely heard things in my office that I thought, geez, dude, you've been through it, you know, but, uh, I became the caretaker in that room. You know, I got to put on, I got to put on my police, my police job now to take care of you because you're crying. And I've screwed you up. So then I, uh, that's strike two. So you can go to a gentleman that he recommended. Nice guy. Again, had a couple sessions with him and his rhetoric was, listen, your anger and, and what I think is PTSD is so bad that I'm not sure what to do with it. And I'm not sure where to send you. Well, not only is that strike three, but I just heard I'm so screwed up that we can't help you. Yeah. Like good exactly. luck, dude, you know? So I always knew that, that there was a lacking of us, 
and that it would probably be an area I was pretty decent at talking people about, but I can't say it was my sole drive at the time. I was just trying to like feed my family and fix myself at this point. Now, uh, the thing about the PhD is it comes with a dissertation, which is a miserable mm -hmm. three to five year process. <laughs> it's horrible. Yes, it is. But the nice thing about it, and you spoke about kind of specializing, that's what really focuses you in a subject matter area. Because just to do it, just the first two chapters alone, I'm writing about everything that's ever been done in this area, more or less, before I even start my own research. I have to get approval from that before you can even start, which is the long process. And, and, and we could talk about kind of the outcomes of it, but I learned a lot about police stress in that period, because I did a very different kind of study than what's been done because it's usually done by researchers and a cop did this, you know, a right. cop that put enough IQ points together to get through school, barely. And, uh, I learned a lot and, and I think that made my drive and focus even stronger because now not only did I know that there was an issue, but I had physical statistical proof that there was an issue. And I think that that made it even stronger. And then it's stronger every time I either a see somebody get help, tell a story, watch a podcast about folks like us. Uh, it just re-energizes me. And so it's been, it's been pretty easy to focus in this area as far as drive goes. So along that, along those, that road on your way to, to a PhD, you, when do you find Dr. Ellis and, and who is Dr. Ellis? So, uh, going back to that kind of idea that the academy doesn't really make you, you know, the police or the firemen, you get out and you start looking good therapists, I think, start looking. And at the time, cognitive behavior therapy is kind of one of the most popular. It's good. Nothing ill will to say about it. So I actually went to the Beck Institute in Philadelphia. I'm one of those that like, I want to go to the source who, who made this stuff. So. I trained there. I learned a lot from, from them, the Becks, um, a lot of good therapy style. And I walked out of there believing what they had to say, but not feeling like it applied to people like me. It was too nice. It was too, just change your automatic thoughts and you'll be okay. There's some truth to that, but it wasn't hardcore enough for me. You know, it was too nice. And I would talk myself out of that. So I keep looking around. And Albert Ellis is a name that most therapists know because he created rational motive behavior therapy, which was kind of the precursor to CBT. It was a little older, but most people know him because Dr. Ellis was a very brash, harsh dude from Manhattan, New York, who told you what he thought and cursed a lot. And not only did that idea intrigue me about therapy. It's not, it's not, I don't want to be a drill sergeant in the ring, but I, I don't want to pat you on the back either. And I don't think people come to me to get patted on the back. I think they come to me because they know they're a wreck and they need to change. Let's make some change. And I was very driven and still to this day on how do we do that as most efficiently as possible? And there's lots of avenues, but so Dr. Albert Ellis created REBT and I'll take one step back real quick in my PhD program. Uh, I had to take a class on, it was something like, um, philosophical history, history of leadership or something like that. And 
uh, we've read through like six or seven well-known philosophical texts. I mean, from, from Seneca, everything, mm -hmm. a little bit of everything. And one of those was Stoic philosophy book. And just reading through this, you know, I was like, oh, that's, that's how I think right there. And like, this makes sense. Some of this other stuff does, but this, I like this. I like this, but I didn't know a lot about philosophy. Well, the, the only grade in that class while intimidating, the only grade in that class was the final paper in which they gave you a consultant based scenario, leadership kind of scenario, and you had to solve it through what you've learned through philosophy. And I did the whole paper on stoic philosophy and cause it just fit, fit me, you know, the whole ideas I really liked. To be honest, I kind of, it was one of those that I wanted to learn more about, but didn't for a little while because I was kind of busy with the doctorate and running a business at this point and, and raising kids, you know? And so I'm like, yeah, that's neat. I'll check into it. I like history. To me, it was history. That, that's kind of how I took it. So I, I'm searching around for, you know, a, a philosophy of my own in therapy. I'm very, I'm feeling very lost, you know, like a new cop or fireman. And I come across what turned out to be Dr. Ellis's last interview. He passed away shortly thereafter. And um, the interviewer said something to the effect of Dr. Ellis, some psychologists love you and some hate you. Why is that? And uh, he said, well, uh, some psychologists love me because my effing shit works. He said the whole sentence. And some psychologists love me because, or hate me because I say things like effing shit all the time. <laughs> and I thought, I like this guy. Like, I don't exactly. think you have to curse at everybody, but I can get behind this. Right. Right. So I did a lot of my own study. And then how it tied into the kind of the philosophy thing was I started watching interviews of how he created it and why, what's going on and taking every class I could get. Cause that's my personality. And, and he said that he actually studied under Freud, the psychoanalyst. And he said, you know, two things. One, I like the idea of psychoanalysis, you know, where you lay down on the couch and free think and kind of what people think of therapy now and, you know, getting to the roots of problems. But Freud had a gene of inefficiency and Ellis, he says, I had a gene for efficiency and I wanted to get people better. I'm like, okay, yes. Mm. And he also said, so I went back to my roots of stoic philosophy to create a type of therapy theory. And I thought, man, if this isn't like a slap in the face, of what right. I should be doing. Like, this is perfect. And then I trained first at a place called Chicago REBT. TJ London was a direct protege of, of Albert Ellis. And uh, uh, I won't tell the long version of the story, but he get the, he's the keynote speaker. He's the instructor, right? And we've all been to keynotes and, and count conferences. TJ London gets up there and he's he's got this like greasy ponytail, a white sleeveless undershirt, gold chains, track pants, tennis shoes. <laughs> And a keynote speaker, and I thought, okay, okay, I like this. <laughs> yeah, right. And every other word was, you know, a curse word. And and some people didn't like him in the room because you'd do scenarios for counseling to train, obviously. And, you know, you've done scenarios where they, you go to the scenario and they take notes. They say, hey, here's some things you could have done differently, you know. And not, not him. TJ Lennon just interrupted your counseling session and told you you're screwing up your patient. So I huh. liked that. That was my style. And then, of course, as I learned more of the tenants, uh, I've trained since at the Albert Ellis Institute in New York City, a couple of times at advanced certificate there. 
And then I'll, I'll just mention on top of that where it flowed really well into uh, is uh, I eventually found and was trained in EMDR by a former army colonel, which is somebody that I could speak to, you know, he wasn't a hippy dippy therapist and, uh, they just, they just pair so well together. REBT is definitely my primary modality EMDRs for specific things, but, uh, yeah, that's where the Albert Ellis stuff comes in. Hey guys, quick break right here, just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. So break it down for me. What is REBT? What, what, what are the tenets to it and, and, and how do you use it? It's a great question. So. What I like to tell people primarily, the short answer is that things cannot make you feel something. There's an event that happens in your life, an event you probably can't change. An event happens in your life. And what we think is, because we're taught this way and it happens quickly, is something happens, we have an emotion. You steal from me, I'm angry. Break up with me, I'm sad. You hurt me, I'm upset. The reality is that we're not going to completely disconnect those two. Absolutely, the things that happen to us impact us. But what matters is my belief, the filter of my belief system of what that goes through. And it's exactly why something can happen. Two different people can have a different emotional outcome or, or behavioral outcome. Um, and also it's context, right? If I, if I arrested somebody for stealing a package of meat from the grocery store, I got to take them to jail. You can't steal. And I asked the guy, like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like, it's five bucks, 10 bucks. What are you doing? And he says, listen, man, my family and I are starving. Three kids at home. I can't find a job. I know that's no excuse, but we're starving and I stole this meat. I still got to take him to jail because you can't steal meat. Uh, I'm not mad at the guy. You know, I'm like, well, that's stupid, but hey, I get it, man. Whatever you do for your family, don't do this again. Let's find you a better route, but I'm not mad at you. You, you steal something from my car because you decide you want it more than me. Screw you, buddy. You know, right. You know, but theft is theft. So, but if theft was just theft, then we would all have the same action every single time. But REBT encourages you to examine the beliefs that are contributing to the problem. Much as like mm -hmm. Stoic philosophy will tell you, it's not what happens to you that matters. It's how you interpret what this means. And that doesn't mean we make bad things good. I'm not going to make traumas good. I'm not going to make things that people do to me good. But, but why sometimes does somebody disrespect you and you're upset? I'm not trying to get to happy from disrespect. Or you disrespect me and I'm, and I'm angry. And RBT has three primary tenets of what we call irrational demands. And they're irrational because they're not based on evidence, right? You, you and I live in a world of evidence-based decisions. Yes, sometimes you got to do things a different way. You know, they didn't, they didn't uh, think of all the scenarios in training, but uh, it's evidence-based, right? I, don't, I didn't arrest people on maybes. I arrested people because I knew they did it. Now, what happened in the jury is a whole different story, but 
I don't, I'm not getting on a stand saying, eh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he did it. You know, I'm going on the stand saying, I know he did it. And here's why. In fact, the term kind of probable cause has always been funny to me. You know, I ask cops all the time, right. when's the last, some, when's the last time you arrested somebody based solely on probable cause? That's the standard for the arrest that we make. But, and everybody says, I knew he did it. That's why I took him to jail. Like he's guilty. Still with the court system, but I didn't take him to jail because I think took him to jail because I know. So we, we, you know, EMS is the same way, right? EMS and fire, obviously each scenario is different, but you're making the decisions based on what you know. You know, every, the floor may be different. How you enter a house is different. The IBU start may be different, but it's based on knowledge, evidence-based. So it always irked me that we were just kind of free floating through therapy, you know, trying to figure things out as we go. I want some evidence. What are we doing here? So irrational means not based on evidence. Rational means based on evidence. It may not be good. Rational doesn't mean happy. It may not be a good outcome, but it's based on evidence. So there's three kind of primary tenets I like to say that always get us in trouble. And they come in the form of these irrational demands. They're things you can't demand and the outcomes that come from them. The first is I must do perfect and other people must see it or I'm a worthless piece of crap. Now, I think we've all been in the world long enough to know you don't do perfect. You're never perfect. We can't be perfect. Mm -hmm. It's okay if other people aren't perfect. But every one of us have turned that into I'm so stupid. I can't do anything right. I never do anything right. Here's another damn thing on the list of damn things that I can't do right. And where does that come from? The depression, anxiety come from, I absolutely have to do perfect and other people must see it or I'm an absolute worthless piece of crap. Which is kind of funny because before we even started talking this morning, I said, this will be an intelligent conversation unless I, I fuck up somehow. Yeah, right. I got to get it perfect. And <laughs> so yeah. it goes right back to that. Yeah, well, and you look at like how that, obviously we're not going to change it to, I don't care if I mess up. Well, of course you care if you mess up, right? But your demand to never mess up or you're worthless is getting you in trouble. Hey, I, I don't right. want to mess up. I really desire and have a passion to do perfectly or I'm going to be upset. Yeah, that makes sense, right? But worthless piece of crap because of my demand that I must be perfect, that doesn't make sense. Exactly. So second is... Uh, the one I'm very good at, you must treat me with the respect that I deserve or you're a worthless piece of crap. There's mm. anger. And then the third right. one, I want to come back to the second one. The third one is the world must be easy and carefree and give me what I deserve when I deserve it, or it's a piece of crap. Yeah. And, and sometimes people will balk on that. One. No, I know you don't get what you deserve. Really? Then why do you say things like, this isn't fair. It must not be this way. They can't do this. Exactly. So let me go back to the second one because it's my favorite. It's what I'm very good at. All right. So you must treat me with the respect I deserve or you're a worthless piece of crap. Well, obviously, I'm not trying to go from that to I don't care if you disrespect me. Of course, I want respect. Right. But I got a couple of different options here. Do I demand that you must treat me with respect? Yeah, good luck with that. You know, I don't know if you've seen how people dislike public safety these days, but demanding respect, get real. Desire respect, right. absolutely. And if I don't get the respect that I desire, that I want, I'm going to have some actions. You're going to jail, I'm write you a ticket, we're going to fight. Mm. You know, we're going to get 
separated, whatever, right? Of course I want to be treated with respect, but my demand for it and demanding that you're a piece of crap as a human being, if I don't get the respect from you is ridiculous. Now, when I first heard this one, I thought, Ooh, man, that's definitely been me on the side of the road, but you know what? I'm not going to let people disrespect me either. You know, I got a job to do. I got a family to deal with. I got, so that one was a hard sell for me at first until I realized who was I really calling a piece of crap? Obviously on the REBT side, somebody cuts in front of me, you know, I'm not going to be happy about that period, but do I deem that they're a shitty driver? I have, I have evidence of that. And whatever you do about that, halt, flip them off, go around them, whatever. Or do I deem that they did it on purpose, they disrespected me, and they're an absolute worthless, trash human being? Yeah. I may still haul my horn, flip them off, whatever you decide to do. The difference is 10 minutes later, you're still gripping the steering wheel so hard you think the airbag's going to pop out. Your wife's looking at you like, what the hell is wrong with you? You freaking monster. And the kids are in the back scared and you're tailgating everybody now. Like I, I, I'm suspect of it, right? This is my favorite one, the, the second one. Um, so, so that's a problem. It, but I still think sometimes I can get behind being really pissed off at people for disrespecting me. Here's where it really hit me. Uh, I would come home, long, long shift, long, making decisions, sweaty, tired, spit at, blood on me, whatever. And I'd come home and my wife, who's a nurse, so she works three, four days a week. She'd have one of her off days and I come home and she's sitting on the couch watching, I don't know, say yes to the dress or whatever the heck it is they watch these days. And there's a sink full of dishes. Well, I'm not some crazy man. I don't think it's her job to do the dishes, but she's been home all day. Now, also, I know she has shitty days too. Some days you just got to sit on the couch. She's a great woman, but I have that moment of like, oh, great. So I just worked all day. Let me go take the shoot form off. And I guess I'll do the dishes around here because I'm the only one that knows how to do this, right? Right. Okay. So I'm annoyed, big deal. And as I like to say, you know, most men appreciate, of course, I went and changed clothes and did the dishes because I want to see my wife naked again one day. So of course I did the dishes. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. But while I'm doing the dishes, man, I'm in a dark place. I'm in a dark yeah. place. I'm slamming pots around and. Yeah. You know, and you're grumbling oh, yourself, man. you're muttering, yeah. pretending yeah. that she All doesn't of it. Can't yeah. hear me, you know, letting her know yep. that I'm yeah. upset. She and should be sorry. Then you hear a what from the couch, you're like, oh, oh. all downhill from there. Yeah, yeah right. And, and the problem yep. is, <laughs> oh, yeah, I've got some dark thoughts, and I don't like saying these words out loud, but this is 100% where I was. I'm willing to admit it because other people do it. I have some dark thoughts that not only would I never say, but I don't believe. She's a lazy piece of crap. I can't believe I'm having to do all this. I do everything around here. This is horrible. We're falling apart. Nothing goes right in this place, right? which is all bullshit, by the way. But that's mm-hmm. where I'm at, right. right? That's where I'm at. Now, if, if somebody else said those things about my wife in a, in a bar, I'm going to break their jaw. Oh, yeah. And it's on. But here I am, the dude that would take a bullet for that woman. I would take a bullet for my wife and kids. And I'm losing my shit about the dishes. What the hell? Well, obviously it's not about the dishes, right? I don't like it. My back hurts. I've had a long day. I don't want to be doing this. And, and I'm now I'm not the guy also. And this is what I love about REBT is I'm not trying to convince myself, gee, aren't you just glad that you have running water and dishes that you can wash and food you can <laughs> eat? No, that's not me. I'm not right. that therapist. Wrong guy, right? I, I know I'm right. thankful for those things, but I am in such a dark place 
that I have made her an evil, horrible person. If even for 45 seconds, guess where your argument comes from? Stop the dishes. Right? Guess where your anger and animosity come from? Stop the dishes. And I'm a firm believer that animosity is what kills relationships. Because now I'm going to eat all this. And next week, when she does something accidental, leave the garage door open when she leaves, it all comes flooding out. Yeah. And that, again. It's that shit you just can't let go. And that doesn't mean that I have to be nice or happy about things going wrong. But how did I get there? How did I get to vilifying the woman I'd take a bullet for? Because you must treat me with the respect that I deserve or you're a worthless piece of crap. Call my wife a worthless piece of crap. See what happens to you. But I'll do it. Mm-hmm. I'll do it. Yeah. And so right. those three tenants, although basic in command, really spell out what happens. And, and, and obviously the filter goes way further than that. We have to dig way deeper than that to find out what yours is and what's going wrong. But if you just look at those basic things alone of these irrational demands that you cannot make, it must not be like this. They should give me that promotion. They must not give that guy that equipment. They must not do this. That doesn't mean I'm okay with it that they did. But there's a very big difference between I wish they hadn't and I'm pissed and we're going to do something about it. Okay. Yep. Perfect. As opposed to they can't do this. Those worthless assholes. Watch what I do now. So when someone comes into your office and you have a first session with them, and I know you're going to, you, you have that getting to know period where you, you get the basic bones of their story and you get, you start to break down what's behind that story or what's behind the anger or what, whatever it is they're coming into your office to, to discuss. And how do you start applying these things to, to, to a client? Yeah. So how did we get to where we are? Practice, practice, practice. How are we going to get away from this monster? Practice, 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 right? And I even tell people, listen, you've done great in this session. We, we, we've torn these things down by using analogies and ABCs and, you know, the activating event, and the basic belief and the consequence and the debating the, the belief and finding a new consequence and a new emotion. You've done awesome. Um, and, and even if you picked it up faster than every client ever before, when you go home tonight pissed, you're not going to do it. You're not going to sit and go, okay, wait, what did Doc say about that whole basic belief thing? Too late. Too late. People ask me all the time, like, Doc, what, what, are, what are some things I can do once I'm already mad? And I know what they want. They, they want coping skills. They want, and those are okay. But, but let's be honest. If I'm in my kitchen slamming cabinets because I'm mad and my wife tells me to take five deep breaths, I'm going down the hallway, slam the door probably twice, probably hard enough to knock the doorbell off the wall. I know I've seen me do it. It's too late. So I always tell people kind of anecdotally, like, what do I do when I get mad? Uh, don't get mad. Obviously there's times in my life I'm be angry or upset or, you know, heated or whatever, but like the solution is not, Hey, see how you're 10 out of 10 out of mad. Just remember what I taught you along the way too late. Right. Yeah. Well, what we at REBT have people do is practice this. Even if it's a minute a day, if you get really good at it, three minutes a day, uh, take something that went wrong today. What was the activating event? What happened? Oh, they called me in for, they made me do mandatory overtime and they knew it was my kid's birth. Uh, skip to see what is the consequence? I was angry, very angry. And I made my anger known. I kind of pissed everybody else off. 
okay, what was the belief and really what was your demand that got you from it's bull crap that they gave me mandatory overtime my kid's birthday to anger? It wasn't the overtime. That's a thing. It may be bullshit. That's yeah. a thing. The captain may be bullshit. The supervisor may be wrong. Maybe they did do it on purpose. I don't know. What is your basic belief? They cannot do this to me, those worthless assholes. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen in my life. I can't possibly handle it. Well, no shit, you're angry. Now, I'm not going to tell people what the right thought process should be. What I want to teach them to get to is this is absolute horse shit and I don't like it. I, I wish they wouldn't do this. Wish doesn't mean wish upon a star. It means like I have a strong desire that they not give me this mandatory overtime. And I think that this is a crappy supervisor move. He's not a good supervisor. She's not a good supervisor. But I didn't label them a worthless a-hole. I just said they Mm -hmm. stuck at doing this. It's not the worst thing that could possibly happen because I awfulized it. And I can't handle it. It's total bullshit but I'm going to have to handle this, whether you take it, whether you find somebody else to take it, whether you write, you sign a petition, right? But, but if my thought process from the same thing, the mandatory overtime is not nice, it's just rational. This is bull crap. And and I don't think, I don't think they should do this. I think that supervisor, something needs to be said. He does it to me all the time, but he's not a worthless a-hole. I don't, maybe he saves orphans on the weekends. I don't know. I just don't like him here. Uh, it's not the most awful thing that could possibly happen. That's not true. And I can't stand it. I'm going to have to. I'm here right now. We're going to have to deal with it. If right. that's my thought process, I am extremely upset. Not happy. Not, oh, I'm, man, I'm just glad it's overtime. Hey, man, you should be thankful. You get to do a job you like. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's all silver lightning BS. It doesn't work for me. It's, it, it's, Man, I'm really upset about this. I think we need to do something about it. Correct. 100%. Yes. And you will now that you're upset. Angry? Right. You just sit at the table pissed off, bitching about everybody. Right. And really eating yourself a lot. I'm not happy about things that happen negatively to me, but, but it fits so well. And we talked about family. Uh, my wife went with me to a speech one time. She doesn't get to travel with me. And and uh, I had her actually get up as a rural EMS symposium. And I had her talk because rural EMS is a lot of families. Mom's a paramedic, dad's a fireman, one's a cop, one's a fireman, you know, uh, in those rural settings. And she got up and talked about her and the kids walking around on eggshells, scared of what was going to piss dad off next, you know. And again, she didn't say I'd ever laid my hands on them or nothing like that, just walking around on eggshells. And I'm in speaker mode and I remember thinking, Lady, you're hot. What'd you stay with that retard for? Why'd you stay with that guy? What a dick, you know? And she gets done. I think, or I turn around back to my PowerPoint to figure out where I'm at. And I was like, oh, shit. That was me. I was that guy. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm the yeah, dick. Yeah, it's me, right? And why yeah. did I do that? My, my kids uh, are not the danger. My wife is not the danger. Right. The uniform is the danger. But I right. learned through a series of unfortunate events and training that if everything didn't go perfectly, we were all going to die. Right. If 
first day of the academy, they showed us dash cams of cops getting killed. Obviously for a reason. Make some people get up and leave, which they did. Make the rest of us pay attention. This is a dangerous job. Mm -hmm. But uh, what does that have to do with my nine-year-old not cleaning her room? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lay down and not let them. Right. But why did I go from zero to ten? Because if that room isn't clean, and if you don't follow directions perfectly, and we do everything perfect, somebody's gonna die. And I learned that, and then I experienced it because sometimes people die. You know, and that starts in that whole EMDR, you know, limbic system part, which is the the cool neurology biology part, but. The REBT is what spoke to me as the most massive change. The EMDR definitely saved me. I needed that, but that, that was incident specific. I had to change my philosophy and I will, EMDR definitely helped me. REBT saved my life because it gave me a different way to understand all the incoming information, not happy, not fake. Not silver lining. I'm not a silver lining guy. You'll never convince me there's a silver lining to a fatal wreck or a burned body or right. nope, sorry. Mm -mm, nope. I'm a realist. But mm -hmm. when I started to be able to go, oh, wait a minute. I'm I'm the problem here. My wife's not a lazy person, a horrible person that 40 seconds that I thought about it. We still had to have a discussion about it, but man. Changing that philosophy to think more rationally changed my emotional response and saved my life for sure. That's what REBT did for me. So I love that analogy of, of, of how that REBT is, is the universal change where the EMDR is the specific mm -hmm. change. And so building upon that, we, we, we just went through the tenets of REBT very briefly, but and, and, but enough for the audience to get a feel for what sure. it is. So once you take that with a client and you go, okay, now I see something we can work on. How do you then work in your EMDR and maybe just the brief, you know, description of EMDR for, for the audience who hasn't heard shows that I've talked about EMDR before. Yeah. So I won't, I won't go too far to like the biology or anything. Cause like you said, there's plenty of people talking about it, but we do know that trauma causes change within the brain. John just changed with things like the amygdala and the limbic system and the hippocampus and the prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex. And lots of people are talking about, that. I do too. But to build on that, and that was what I learned in the beginning to build on that, um, you know, everything that happens in our life, uh, records a memory of someone, some kind. Right. And because of that PhD, I'm a research guy. I like to do a lot of research into what I'm saying and why things, you know, I don't know that I'll ever invent like a therapy theory, but I want to know more about huh. what I'm doing every day. So it, when you first get done with schooling for EMDR, it's very, this belief that people are going to come in, they're going to tell you that this happened to them, that they can't stop thinking about it. They have nightmares and dreams and it's ruining their life. And you think that's what I do. People are going to come in and say they can't get in a car because they were in a car wreck six months ago. We'll do some EMDR. They'll be good to go. And there is some of that. It's about 4% of what I see, right? The reality is most of it's chronic stress and trauma all put together. Um, and what I discovered was, yes, we got to work on those, right? If you're having physical, mental, emotional reactions from those, we need to work on those events. 
they're stuck, right? But bigger than that, and what people aren't talking about is the theme that it causes in your life. Most uh, civilians will see one and a half to two critical events in their life. Public safety members, depending on what you read, will see between 400, 450 and 750 in their 20-year career. Mm-hmm. And that tells me two things. One, we're pretty badass because we keep going. Right. And two, the trauma is not the problem. The trauma is a problem. Nobody wants to see that stuff. You have a visceral mm-hmm. reaction to it. Sometimes you have memories. Sometimes you drive by that place and it kind of makes your stomach hurt a little bit. That's not necessarily PTSD. It's the memory doing memory stuff. So the second thing that taught me is it must not be the trauma because also why do we go to the same calls and one person is a mess after it and one's okay? Right. So what really is it? The theme, and here's the theme, is that today's dysfunctional emotions, so anger, anxiety, depression, guilt, PTSD, whatever fits, are created by previous life events that left us feeling helpless and hopeless and not good enough. And it's that that's being re-triggered. The, the incident is gone, but it's that helpless and hopeless and not good enough feeling that, that re-triggers. And when, when those words came about, I thought, I'm going to have to change those words for tough guys and gals. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, you call me helpless in a bar, it may not go well for you. I'm good enough. What are you talking about? Right. But what I found was I didn't change the words because if somebody's hurting and sitting across from me or online and I said, helpless, hopeless, not good enough. Every one of them drop their head and go, yep, that is exactly what I feel like when it hits. Mm. Uh, There there could be some rage. There could be some anger. There could be a nightmare. There could be physical reactions that lots of people are talking about, but yeah, I feel helpless and hopeless and not good enough. Right. So not to give up, not to, you know, trigger anybody else's trauma, but so I look back to that car wreck. It was just another car. I've been to a billion fatal car wrecks. I mean, I can drive down the interstate and tell you what color the cars were, but they doesn't bother me. It's just this kind of crappy memory system. Like, ah, oh, man, I wonder how that family's doing. Oh, that was a gross one. Oh, they got decapitated on right. that one. That was weird. Saw the inside of a neck, but, but I'm not freaked out by that. Why did that one? get why did that one start to turn the corner and become this issue of every time somebody drove reckless or drunk i was over the top because i'm standing next to a car listening to a lady burn alive or burn to death is a better term and i'm helpless and hopeless and not good enough what a piece of crap cop you are dude you know big strong power lifter can't even get this old lady out to save her you're a piece of crap man now, obviously, I know she was trapped. A crane couldn't have gotten her. Right. I knew that lady. Um, but I, I didn't have flashbacks or nightmares. There's some things that to this day I can still kind of see and hear, but they don't upset me. I just don't like them, you know, um, from that wreck and, and subsequent stuff. But here I am, helpless, hopeless, and not good enough. And now I've stopped you. Reckless driving, which is not good, but you know, not a class A felony or, you know, highest felony. Um, it's not good. We need to get this stopped. You could get somebody hurt, but I'm treating it like you just took a shot at me. Why? Because now if you wreck, I'm going to be helpless and hopeless and not good enough again. Now I would have never used those words, 
I'm stopping you today because you made me feel like crap. No, right. helpless, hopeless, not good enough. My made my brain go, oh shit, here we go again. Game on. Fight time. Let's go. Can't deal with this anymore. My kid's not listening to me. Helpless, hopeless, not good enough. My wife's threatening to leave. Helpless, hopeless, not good enough. Right. Um, you know, I never once got on my knees and begged my wife to stay. Probably should have. You know, I took that as, oh, you think I'm a piece of crap? See ya. See ya. Right. Bye. Which I'm glad didn't happen. Uh, but, uh, whoo, you know, there were some years there. You know? But, but so EMDR, what I like to say very strictly is EM, what EMDR helps is maladaptively processed or unprocessed memories because that causes the problem. Taking care of a right. memory may not fix your life. It may not be a memory, right? But when I started seeing that these memories were making people feel helpless, hopeless, not good enough, man, we really started making change in what was going on in the brain. You know, how many people, um, I, I, I'll, tell, I'll tell a generic story really quickly because I think it sums up what goes on in the brain. I worked with a gentleman a few years ago, public safety, you know, well, EMS, we'll say that. And he went to a call and it was, was, was probably a sense case. Kids stopped breathing overnight. It's a horrible thing. You know, we've all, we've all had to see it and he gets there and of course they can't revive the kid. They take him to the hospital. It's a bad outcome. And I said, what do you, what image do you see when you think of that? And what he saw was the mom bringing the wifeless kid out to the ambulance. As soon as they pulled up, mm -hmm. he's like, I'm stuck on that. Right. That's all I can see. And yeah. I think that'd be tough for anybody. Everybody's got like, oh man, I hate thinking about that call or maybe it does mess them up for half a day or whatever emotional, you know, but that's all he could see. And we get an image for a reason, but an EMDR, but, but then I said, what does that image mean about you? And I think anybody would be willing to say like, that was a tough scene. Like, oh, God, I wish we could have done more. You know, he said, oh, I completely failed. I, I completely screwed up. I mean, I know the other two medics on my truck told me, that kid's been dead for hours. It's a SIDS case. This mm -hmm. has nothing to do with us. We can do whatever we want to this kid. It's not going to matter. We still did it. You know, they still did it. Cause that's what you do. You know, when you get a fireman right. or a kid or a kid, you still work on it. But, but, and we know why, but he knows that prefrontal cortex, that thinking brain, he knows there's nothing he could do different, nothing. And it's not his fault because of the level of this trauma. His brain said, you're a worthless piece of crap. You helpless trash. So the reason I tell a story specifically, it's much like many of the ones I see every day, is once we process it through EMDR, he didn't see just the mom and the baby anymore. He still saw that. It was a prevalent part of the story. But what he saw now was the whole scene. Right? I think it was raining or the odds were out. And the, we pulled up as fast as we could, you know, um, Mom was in a, in a robe because she was so frantic. You know, baby was in a pink onesie, yeah. you know. And the details don't necessarily make it better. Those are hard details. But his brain finally went, oh, okay. Huh. There's a SIDS case. Oh, man. That's terrible. Okay. Yeah, I got the whole picture now. Um, 
an, an equivalent one that I always tell, and I have 100% permission to tell this story. Um, 2005-ish, I think it was, a flight 5191 crashed here in our town. Uh, killed 49 of the 50 people on board. And a couple of us got there very quickly. Uh, one got there, so he was the first one there. He was able to help save the co-pilot. And um, for probably 10, 12 years, um, he's just eating this trauma. And I know some people went to it and, and had a rough two weeks, and then they were okay. Uh, he's stuck with this. Of course, he's in the news a lot because he did save that guy. It's constantly reminded of it. And uh, one day, he's shopping with his kid in the toy section and doing pretty well. This is years and years later. And next to the toy section is the suitcases. He looks over and he sees a baby's suitcase, like Mm. a kid's, like My Little Pony or something, you know, suitcase. And it hit him right then. He stepped over one of those going to that flight. Yeah. And he probably had that memory in there, right? He probably thought about it on a bad day or, and he just broke down in the middle of the store, just like crashed, broke down the middle of the store. So we did some EMDR. That's obviously very incident specific. And what he said was, now he sees it, and in his words, he says, it's almost like there's a Snapchat filter over it. Like, it's there. And it's bad. But, okay. It's a terrible story. You know, just kind of like we tell the others, right? So, so obviously, anybody responds to a plane crash with 49 people deceased is horrible. Mm. But now... He's not helpless and hopeless and not good enough. It's just a crap story, you know? And he tells that story to people now um, about this critical event that he responded to and the media that happened after, how the administration handled it and how he doesn't feel like he got help and, you know, it became a lawsuit later and the story that goes on. But uh, it wasn't the crash. It was it was helpless, hopeless, not good enough. And then, again, that that is incident-specific um, I'll get, I'd, I'd get crucified for this in the EMDR world. I think EMDR is overused sometimes. I think people want to make it fit everything. And EMDR is mm-hmm. to fit maladaptive living or unprocessed trauma memories. So mm-hmm. uh, it can obviously expand from that. Maybe it's not a trauma. It's a thought process we're trying to fix. But that fits so well into REBT because it's the filter that's the problem. Not the incident. Not you, you know, broken. You got a limbic system problem. You got a filter problem. We got to fix this filter. And man, once I started to see that, and that last piece of that filter to tie all that in together is what I go in and talk about is I, I call the talk the real signs of PTSD. Because anybody can come to my office with the six diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Hmm. And if I rattled them off, uh, you'd say, oh crap, that's all of us. Because it doesn't take much to, for the criteria, right. right? Doesn't mean everybody has PTSD. What I'm curious is, how is it affecting your life? Because people don't come into my office and say, I had, saw this critical event. I can't stop thinking about it. I have intrusive memories and it's changing my life. Every now and then, some people will know, here's a thing I can't stop thinking about, right? Mm-hmm. That's 10%. 90% come in and say, I'm angry all the time. My marriage is falling apart. I'm drinking too much. I'm taking pills I shouldn't be taking. I'm, I'm sleeping around because it's exciting uh, and it gives me thrill. Um, I'm sick all the time. I used to be healthy all the time. I'm sick all the time. I don't go to the gym anymore. I have no motivation. Um, you know, 
what I call the real signs. What is it doing to your life? Now, have you gotten lazy and older and you don't work out as much? Okay. That doesn't mean you have PTSD, right? But, but what about all this stuff that's falling apart outside your life? That's the real signs of trauma. That's the real signs of a mental health problem. Not, Hey, I'm different than I used to be. Oh, really? <laughs> You've seen 20 years of crap. You know, yeah. we got to fix the filter. Not happy go lucky reality. We got to fix this filter. So I think it's interesting you say that you believe emdr is, is used a little too much or in or in spots where it's not necessary and i get my question about emdr was going to be what if you what if i go to your office and i i just don't know what the memory is there how do you like you can't is that a something that that do you then delve into it and you go okay well let's track back and then you then you start to find something yeah. or or what do you do with that yeah yeah in fact, that's far more common than people coming in and saying a memory. And, and I will tell you, uh, most of the time that we dig, we do find, if not a memory, a time in life, a series of events, a feeling from childhood, you know, that did start this, right? Helpless, hopeless, not good enough came from somewhere. You didn't do it on purpose. Sometimes it's an incident. Sometimes it's mm -hmm. neglect as a kid over decades. Sometimes it's bullying. Sometimes... Right. So yes, we'll use a series of questions that, because the first thing I'm looking for is, is this something we need to take care of first before we just start arbitrarily changing this filter, right? Because this filter right. is a learning process in REBT. So it is the first thing I look for. It's not always there, but I'll use things to the effect of, um, without going too detailed so that nobody tries to like, you know, jumble themselves with it. So tell me what needs to change. Hey man, I'm angry all the time. Okay. Tell me about the last time you were angry over the top. Uh, my wife and I fought over the dishes, right? Okay. That happens, man. Um, you know, I want you to bring up that fight because it obviously isn't about the dishes. We both already know this, right? It's the animosity and the not good enoughs and the bring up that fight. Uh, what image do you get, right? Go back to that guy that was thinking of the mom and the baby. Oh man, I can, my wife is slamming the door and I'm sitting on the couch crying because I'm a piece of shit, right? I did it again. I've ruined vacation again, right? Okay. Um, where do you feel that, you know, we'll get it kind of activated. And then I'll ask, when is the, holding all this in your head of what's going on, when's the earliest time in your life you remember feeling this way, this, or, or what does this mean about you? I'm hell, I, I'm not good enough. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm ruining my family. You know, I'm not strong enough. Ooh, that's, that would cause way more than anger. When's the first time in your life yeah. you felt that way? When I was eight and I watched my dad beat the piss out of my mom and I couldn't do anything about it. Oh, <laughs> turns out this has been hanging around a long time. Not the fighting with wife that the, right. I'm a weak ass piece of crap who can't do anything right has been hanging on since age eight. Now, again, yeah. maybe that is the thing. Maybe that's where it started. We got to get some of that stuff cleared out because obviously that's hanging around. In reality, it's, it's the, what it made you feel, not the visual, the visual will change, you know, the, the, the sting of it will change with EMDR, but it's that, what we call the negative cognition. I'm a worthless piece of crap. who can't do anything right. Guess where was I on that? Right. I'm a worthless piece of crap. who can't do this right. Despite having medals for bravery in the line of duty, I'm a worthless piece of crap. 
Um, so I'm always looking for a target, whether we find the first day or a year in or what, whatever, um, whether it's there, whether it's not, whether you go, I mean, I have that memory, but I've kind of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make me feel that way. I just, I just hate that memory about mom and dad. You know, I've, I'm 48 now. I'm, 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 I'm in an okay place with it. You know, well, I want to make sure that's true, but maybe they are. And maybe we just need to jump into filter, but right. what made you feel helpless, hopeless, not good enough. And, and I don't necessarily start with the question because we're tough guys and you know, I'll shut mm -hmm. I might shut down, but yeah. Um, that, I see that far more, this kind of finding the target. I see that far more. And you don't have to have a perfect target either. You can do EMDR on things like physical sensations, feelings, beliefs. I'm not sure where it came from. I just know since age eight, I felt like a piece of crap, you know, and maybe something comes up specific. Maybe it doesn't. I want to help you with the trauma. I'm more interested in helping you with the belief that you hold because of the trauma, because there's the kicker, you know, there, there's the kicker. And I don't, you know, like you said, I'd get crucified in the EMDR world for, for saying that, like, I don't want to say that's the only thing it's for. But one of the things that we know about bilateral stimulation, which is part of it is it's hard to prove kind of the REM sleep connection and the left, right brain we're, we're we know that's going on, but it's hard to kind of show that what we definitely know from brain scans is that bilateral stimulation calms the limbic system of the brain the amygdala so that you can process this memory without the immediate physical reaction if that's what it takes to get to this not having the same reaction every time great yeah i was gonna i was gonna mention and and we could probably go off on a on an offshoot on a tangent here for a while but what's being found about the brain now is, is, is changing some of these mm -hmm. thoughts as well. Correct. About how we, how, about where we process stuff and how we, how we store stuff and, and how the brain works in overall in general is kind of changing yeah. some from, from what I've been reading. Yeah. It's become a big area of study for me recently. I'm not a neurologist, but it's, it's definitely become a strong area of interest. Uh, in fact, I asked my wife a couple of years ago, I said, Hey, what do you think if I went back to medical school and get my MD in uh psychiatry kind of, or neurology kind of add uh, to this, what I'm doing and uh, God bless her. She said, I think you're smart enough and I think you're driven enough to do it, but you will be single. Yep. That that's fair. <laughs> How much school do we really need? Yeah, like, come on, man. It's a very judicious answer. I think you're smart yeah, enough. You're like, I think you can do it. You have no I have no doubt you can pull it off, but I'm not doing it. <laughs> right. I'm not doing this again. How many doctor titles do you need? You know? Right. But I thought that because I'm really getting into the kind of the brain science of it all. And not only what they're talking about now a lot of where things are stored and how this works and why EMDR does what it does, but even to me, like the study of serotonin and dopamine has become very mm -hmm. big. Um, right now, I'm doing a lot of trying to understand a dopaminergic anticip anticipation, right? Like, and, and, and public safety people will get this. I, I don't know how this would fare and how this would sell in the civilian world. But, you know, if you come back from combat, say military person in combat, they buy a motorcycle and they drive it really fast. They're chasing that adrenaline and the dopamine. We all know this, right? Yeah. And it becomes yep. incrementally exciting, right? hundred miles an hour, then yes. 120, then 140. Then one time you got away from a cop and then like, 
but eventually yeah. you kind of hit this, this peak, right? And you start thinking like, man, I'm stupid. I got kids. I got to knock this off. That was fun. Mm-hmm. It's not really the same anymore. Moving on, right? Here's the one that I talk about with public safety, because let's just be honest. It's there. Infidelity is rampant in public safety. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, it could be in the civilian world too. I don't know. I haven't been a, it's a 16 years old. Right. So I just don't know that world. So I can't compare, but it is definitely rampant within our world and not to ever make an excuse about it. But why? One of the reasons is, is dopamine, obviously chasing the adrenaline, chasing everybody, everybody wants to feel attractive in some way. But, but, but what I'm so fascinated by now is as opposed to that kind of gradual increase of excitement from the motorcycle, infidelity or taboo sex or talking to somebody, whatever, whatever that is for you, right? the thing you're not supposed to be doing, it is extremely exciting, extremely fast, right? It's a peak, right? It hits the top of that level quick. And the moment that it's over is the worst drop in feeling ever. I'm a piece of crap, right? Not, oh man, I need to knock this off. I got kids, you know, I'm going to get hurt. It is super exciting, immediate drop off. Well, a couple of things, chasing adrenaline. Maybe you don't feel attractive at home. There's a lot of things too. But what I believe is driving that the most because of the evidence of the immediate drop off is it's not the, the sex or the texting or it's the dopaminergic anticipation. How exciting is that thrill, right? It, it, and once you have it, it's not that exciting. In fact, you feel kind of dumb, right? You know, no, you'll do it again next yeah. week. It's the, yes, the chase yeah. is, what, is what people are, are, are enjoying. It's not necessarily the it's, act. I think that's the professional term for that is dopaminergic anticipation. We, we love right. the dopamine dump from how exciting, right? Like, um, and it, I mean, I could go on for hours about that, about how social media has ruined it and all sorts of different stuff, but you know, but, yeah. but I, I think that's reality is it's cool. We're learning science about the brain. We still got to do things like fix the filter, right? Like that's, that's mm-hmm. not a, right. that's started by some anticipation or dopamine or, you know, serotonin and norepinephrine and all the stuff that we need to fix, but, and where that stuff's stored and how it connects. And I'm very fascinated by all that. And it's definitely become a part of my practice and study and, 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 and helping people. But, but, uh, you know, it's still the organ we, I think we know the least about is that brain. Yeah. So fascinating to me. I love listening to people that are knowledgeable about to talk about it and, and how many times I've had aha moments because of that. Oh yeah. That's, uh, I listened to a psychiatrist one time I was at NYU, uh, taking a class and this guy was talking about some of his brain stuff. And my first thought was, man, this dude's describing like 98% of my clients. And then I realized, man, this dude's describing me. This is me, me. you know? Right. And it, it's, it's one, uh, my passion to get better at this uh, because I want to help people like us. Uh, you know, and two, becomes that strong area of study because, you know, let's be honest, I started this journey because I wanted to figure out what the heck was wrong with me. And uh, I figured a lot of it out. Thank goodness, I'm not perfect. So. Uh, I tell people all the time, man, if you knew the dumb stuff I do, you'd probably not take any advice from me, but I'm better <laughs> at this part at least. So, no. yeah, I, I know that yeah. feeling. I know yeah. that feeling yeah. very yeah. well. Yeah. 
So talking about helping people, you have some online resources. You want to explain kind of what you've got on your website and, and what your goal is with, with those programs? Yeah, and the way I like to describe it is kind of, is the origin of it. You know, I'm a licensed psychotherapist, got that doctorate. The problem with that is I have a license in one state. And that license allows me to do psychotherapy in one state. But I would get calls after doing things like this. Uh, podcasts and interviews and talking and teaching and YouTube videos. And people would call and they're like, man, uh, I want your help. You seem like the guy that I need to talk to. You understand me. You sound like you got some solutions. I want you to help. And in the beginning, I tell them like, sorry, like you got to come to Kentucky. Sorry. And there for a while, I did a program, an intensive program where people could come out for two weeks, you know, stay, which is expensive, unfortunately. And then they just get 90 minute sessions twice a day for two weeks, you know, but man, that also got logistically terrible and expensive for people because insurance is going to pay for that. They're not going to pay for intensives. Thinking of the energy expenditure. A lot too. for both of us. Yeah. 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 Not lie. It is. Yeah. Um, but you know, for me, I, I do it 10 hours a day in my office and then, you know, the rest of my life online. So, so, but, but it, it could be a lot of, a lot at once, but, but people did it because they were hurting. Right. So what that became was, how do I at least give some information out past my state lines? That became the YouTube channel and the Instagram. And then I started realizing that I don't have to do therapy with everybody. You know, um, why don't we get on a consultation call and, and figure out what's going on with you? And I can teach you how to fix this right? uh, under more of an educational basis. Then tell me everything bad that's ever happened to you and let me fix them. Right. Still important, still needed. But how about we do this on an educational basis that allowed me to do it. And then I started figuring out, dude, this is, this is helping people so fast, you know, that, that, that yeah, maybe they're getting this information from our podcasts and interviews and stuff. And that's awesome. Uh, and I'll always provide free value online somehow, but that's my, that's my goal. But being able to show people how to fix this filter instead of magically, you know, hypnotizing them or whatever, you know, whatever some people do, um, what was making people grow so much faster in such a wider basis that it's become a driving passion. So, uh, I just want people to kind of see what that is. So yeah, online are pretty easy to find the angry therapist.com. What that will take you to is my website in which you can buy packages, or I do have an app that people can sign up for, um, small monthly fee. And what you get is every day online learning, plus a group chat, not group therapy. You know, we're not going to hold hands and but an online group chat, uh, really more supportive from, from everybody in the group than anything uh, of both, both community in the app and also once a week online. Uh, and then, you know, some people can talk to me one-on-one, -on -one, some people can increase whatever services they feel like is appropriate for them from just the app up into one-on-ones where we can talk and, and right. sort this stuff out. Um, and, and that's what I push people more towards. Uh, if, if that's not for them, uh, YouTube is Dr. Trevor Wilkins, angry biking therapist, pretty easy to find, uh, put stuff out there regularly about these kind of conversations. Uh, Instagram is kind of what gets updated the most just because of what a great, uh, a great yet frustrating 
platform it is, as you well know, your con- yeah, you your content it right awesome. there. I mean, I, your, your content <laughs> caught my eye quickly, but, um, so, and that's just Dr. Trevor Wilkins, Dr. Trevor Wilkins, uh, and you can search for that and it's updated. You know, I, I stay on top of it. So, um, that's the free resources. That's the sources that people can kind of reach out directly to me, uh, either through that, um, or through the website, you know, if they see something, they're like, yep, it's, uh, what you said makes sense. And it's, it's time for me to get help. And I think you're the person. Cool. Let's rock and roll. Let's do it. You don't have to come here. Let's do it. So, you know, I'm going to ask you a couple more yeah. questions, but before we get to my last two questions, I want to, I want to see if, if a little later or not, maybe after the turn of the new year, you'd be willing to come back and talk some stoicism oh, and maybe some, 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 some brain, some brain talk. Let's gladly, put it that way. Gladly. Cause I'd like to, I'd like to pick your, no pun intended, I'd like to pick your brain sure. a little bit about it. Um, yeah, I, like I said, I've been doing some reading on the brain and then the, the kind of the new approach to what the brain is, is fascinating to me. So, and, and I know that we'll both come from this from a, from, you know, not a professional standpoint necessarily, but, a, but a, just a conversation standpoint. I think it would sure. be fascinating. I'd gladly, to do gladly. That. I can talk about that all day. It's changed my life. So my last two questions are, I don't know if you've read the book. It's called the things they carried It's by Tim O'Brien. Yes. It's been a little while, but yeah. Uh, Okay. So that's, I bastardized my title for the show based like on that it. book. So, um, being that I like to ask people what about, what an everyday carry is for them. What do you, what do you not leave the house without? Uh, just book wiser in, in life in general and life and in general. So, uh, so I'm still a cop at heart and I've put a lot of bad people in jail. So I don't leave without a Glock 22 caliber, to be honest. Uh, which, you, you know, but I'm, I'm proficient with that. I know everybody doesn't need to carry a firearm. Mm-hmm. Very proficient with that. You know, uh, I'm also one of those people that, uh, I carry a flashlight with me everywhere I go, just small streamlight. Uh, that's one of the things mm-hmm. that I've watched people disastrously get in trouble with is oh, I got my flashlight on my iPhone for how long is it charged? Um, I've tried to hold yeah. an iPhone and a gun at the same time. It didn't work very well. It doesn't shine very mm-hmm. far. So. So when I think of EDC, those are kind of the practical things I don't leave home without. Um, I'm one of those guys, I got a tourniquet nearby. You know, I am an affiliate of a company uh, called Refuge Medical, which I love. They do great IFACs. I've got one of those nearby at all times. Uh, great, great equipment. Um, mental wise, on the other side is, is kind of two things. One, I've always got a phone with me because... Uh, for obvious reasons, but I am a prolific note taker. Um, I write things down in sentences all day long, which become YouTube videos, things to remember, man, Mm -hmm. I've learned so many things from so many people. And I think like, oh, I need to look them up. And then I forget all about it. So I pro I have probably miles worth of pages of notes. Uh, that I keep in categories. That's just the kind of thing I do. I'm not a big journal person uh, of writing a lot. Right. I like to write down snippets and, and think about them for a while. Kind of this that stoic philosophy mindset. You hear a lot of cool, you'll hear an Epictetus saying, and I want to sit on it, stew on it for a while. Uh, book, while you talk about book, if I was leaving with a book that would regularly help me, there's a book called Three Minute Therapy by uh, Dr. Michael Edelstein who was a direct protege of Albert, Dr. Albert Ellis. And it's obviously okay. not that you can fix yourself in three minutes, but it's if you will take three minutes a day 
and go through these tenets of this, both of this, what the philosophy is of REBT, but practice what we call the ABCs, uh, which you also get through my, through my app. You have a way to practice that every day. If you will practice every day, understanding that this activating event gets filtered through this belief and causes a consequence and how to make that better. Uh, again, you know, we said earlier, I can't stand next to you and tell you to do it and you get it right. But if you did it last night and something's popping up and you go, eh, hang on, man, this is just like I was thinking yesterday. I need to slow down for just a second here. You know, th- think this spot through. That's how you get better. Practice, practice, practice. That's a really good book. Um, that if I were going to take one, that would be a regularly, I may not carry it every day, but would be my kind of go-to when I need a reminder. It's things like that. And there's tons of Stoic philosophy books too. Yeah. I mean, there, those are the, uh, that's kind of the in thing now, the Stoic philosophy yeah, books yeah. And, and people are, people have finally, not finally, but it, you see it quite often nowadays. It is the only thing I, I warn people about. There's kind of a, um, derogatory saying within stoicism like are you actually doing stoicism or are you doing broicism you know there's a lot of broicism yeah i could say yeah okay yeah no i like that i like that and saying that that does that makes total sense yeah yeah there's a there's certainly that that air of of well i just stumbled upon this and now i'm now i'm a stoic and no yeah you know i i don't i don't i've not read much stoicism but I, I see that when people find oh, yeah. I see yep. that. And good on them. Yeah. I hope if that's their start, good on them. I hope they follow up with it. But but you, you need more than just two cool sayings to put a tattoo on your arm and live by it. Like we, that, that stoicism right. is not a cool saying. It's a whole philosophy system of how you see the world. And when you really dive mm-hmm. deep, I mean, I go so far as, as I regularly read a book about the stoics themselves, their lives and how they got to this and, and that's what I like knowing. That's how I got the things like REBT because, you know, I looked at Albert Ellis and thought, that's the dude I want to be like, you know, like that's right. I, I literally, I talk about my note taking. I have a, one of them says my, my inner Ellis, you know, because my Ellis come <laughs> out in that, in that section. Right. Hey, uh, thank you so much. I, I've, I've enjoyed this yeah, conversation. Yeah, me too. I'm always down to talk this stuff. I, like you said, I'd be glad to come back on and that way, you know, we can dive more into that stuff than history. And, and, uh, although I always yeah. enjoy telling the story, mainly not just so they know me, even if they never look me up again, but, uh, my favorite thing to hear when I give these speeches is somebody will come up and say, dude, I swear you were talking about me. And I just tell them like, it's because mm-hmm. I'm talking about me, man. Like I thought I was right. so alone. That was part of that helplessness. I'm broken and I'm yeah. so alone. I'm so stupid that nobody can fix me because that that therapist said so. And it turns out there are tens of thousands of us that feel the same way. And it is not isolating, should not be isolating like it is. You know, I'm not broken. I'm not screwed up. I just got some stuff going on I need to fix, you know. It's very similar to to two years ago when I thought about making or creating this show. Um, I had... In our area, in the DMV, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, we had five five firefighters from different runs, different aspects of life, different parts of their lives, different stages of their lives. We had five suicides yeah, a year wow. in the area, 
And now we're a sure. big area, but that's still a significant number. And that's the number that we're recognized. Sure. For absolutely. Or, yes. You know, so at that point I said, no, people aren't realizing that we're all going mm -hmm. through this shit and we're all reacting in very similar ways in general, similar ways, but very specific ways to, 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 a, to a person. But, and it was the reason that this show was created was to say, Hey, you're not alone. This is us. This is what we do. This is how, this is, this is what we can do. If we, if we try to process it yep. properly. Yep. There is healing on the other side. It's just that healing was so led by people that I don't want to say they didn't know what they were talking about. I have this saying about public safety until you see it, you don't see it. You know, like I, I can, mm. I can describe right. trauma that I've seen all day long, but you still won't get it. And, and uh, my brother, who's a 30 year Marine can, can describe combat, but he can't make people understand it. No, no, you can't. And I, and the one thing that's hardest for, I know what I've discovered is when people ask you about, well, how, how do you. I don't know, go into a burning building. I, you can't explain the mm -hmm. calm that you yeah. actually feel. Uh, yeah, yeah. I go back to that story earlier, being mad, viscerally mad, and like hoping a stolen car went by because that was nothing. There, there's no emotion. Right. We, we are. If I haven't said this yet, we are most tactically proficient when we're most emotionally disconnected. I am trained mm -hmm. biologically and it and through training to shut off my emotion. I got work to do. Yeah. Yep. It serves us very well at work, and it destroys us at, uh, away from work. Point. Well, sir, I'm going to let you go enjoy the rest of your Monday. Um, uh, again, thank you very much. I've appreciated this. I've enjoyed it, and I will be in touch with you. This one's going to go out in a couple Great. of days, so I'll, I'll let you I'll let you know. And then um, I'll get back in touch with you at the turn of the year, and, and let's talk I'm again. excited. I'm down for it. Awesome. Right. Perfect. Thank you. I appreciate it. Enjoy thank your you. Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourself, and remember to check in on each other.